Father, thank you for your word and that we can think of it and that we can think of you and that we can consider who you are. And we ask that you would just help us this morning by your spirit. Our, our minds are weak and, and tired and easily distracted by so many lesser things, Father. And so we ask that you would help us as we consider who you are and how we know you and what it means that we know you. So we, we pray for your guidance, for your blessing. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so uh, as Jim mentioned, uh, we're currently in the middle of a series on some of the big questions of the faith. Uh, and the question before us this morning is, how can we know that God exists? That's a, a big question indeed, right? Uh, now, obviously, in, in what follows, I don't pretend to have dealt with every conceivable argument or counter-argument uh, for existence uh, or for the non-existence of God handed down to us by history or philosophy or any other field for that matter, right? Not only would that... Uh, be impossible and not very interesting probably uh, it would really not be that helpful uh, for most of us right what what one person sees as sort of a persuasive pointer in one direction uh, that might be a stumbling block for another person uh, think about for example uh, arguments from history such as maybe the the nature and the quantity of something like manuscript evidence right so you might find that, and you might hear that and take that to be just rock-solid proof for the claims of Scripture, right? Or you might hear that, and, and as you think about some of the alleged discrepancies in those manuscripts, that might be the very source of your skeptical hesitations, right? So rather than consider this or that argument for existence uh, and non-existence, our focus this morning is going to be on the nature of the question itself. How we understand the actual question ultimately determines the way we think about all these various arguments. Uh, for example, consider one of the most well-known arguments for God's existence. The argument from, the, the so-called argument from design, right? Uh, according to this, all, all created reality around us, right, uh, bears sort of these unambiguous marks of a designer. So, it was probably designed, right? You have everything from the solar system down to the sinus cavity, right? Uh, so all of these sort of unambiguous marks show us that God must have designed the world. But uh, here we can kind of see how this reasoning already assumes a sort of understanding of who God is in the first place. Uh, specifically, uh, it shows us that uh, the type of God that exists is the type of God that would create the type of world and the type of people that would come to that type of conclusion, right? Uh, and so, what if you happen to be prone to perpetual sinus infections, right? You might be more likely to agree with someone like David Hume, right, that the world was more evidently designed by a sort of mob of incompetent angels than an eternally perfect God. Right, 
So the actual question of God's existence is in some important sense prior to a lot of these various arguments for God's existence, not a result of them. Okay? So uh, consider an analogy, right? How, how are we supposed to interpret a certain law? Uh, that kind of depends on what you think about the nature of law, right? Is law fixed? Is law fluid? Are laws absolutes? Are laws constructs? Uh, how we interpret an individual law is going to be determined ultimately by what you think the nature of law itself is. Uh, and, and in the same way, then, our interpretation of various arguments for the existence of God is going to be ultimately determined by how we understand this question of God's existence is even settled in the first place. Okay? All right. So let's all hydrate. All right, so one other thought before we jump sort of headlong into this vast sea of God's existence. For, for many of us, it doesn't take long before our attention and our interests reach their ceiling when it comes to technical, philosophical, and theological discussions, right? Um, it's kind of like a tea that just becomes completely unpalatable after just a couple minutes of extra steeping, right? Uh, so here at the outset, I, I want to plead with you to bear with me um, because I think the fruit of this discussion, no matter what side of the question you may find yourself on this morning, the fruit of thinking through these things is worth the toil. Um, so this question and how you think of it, it influences your, your every thought, like we said, your every action, your every desire. Your every inner longing, what you eat, what you wear, where you go, who you love, who you hate, and why. All of these things turn on our view of God's existence. So the question is uh, complex and it's confusing and it can even be a little frustrating for we finite mortals, right? But one thing it is is not is irrelevant, even down to the seemingly most insignificant instances of our life. So, how can we know that God exists? Let's consider three things to sort of unravel this together. The, the first thing we'll do uh, is define the question. What are we asking exactly? Uh, the second thing we'll do is describe an answer, not the answer, an answer, and then we'll discuss a brief application. All right, so the first thing for us to do is define the question. Before we can attempt to answer how it is that we know God exists, right, we have to see what it is we're even asking. What, what does somebody mean when they say to you, how do you know that God exists? How do you know something? What does that, what does that mean? Uh, so, are they seeking for some sort of logical consistency among our beliefs? Are they seeking for some sort of maybe inner peace that we feel, some, some subjective feeling that we 
possess? Are they seeking for maybe a sort of objective standard that they could judge our claims by? Uh, what is it that we want to know when we ask about what we know? So to define this, we're going to consider two things. To define our question, we'll look at two things. Uh, first, how do questions of knowledge work in general? And then specifically, how do these questions relate to, to how we speak of God's existence? And then after this, we'll move into our passage this morning as we consider an answer. Okay, so how do questions of knowledge work? All right, stick with me. So this is a great example of how philosophy, most of the time, uh, it is really just a very detailed explanation of things that we would probably just say are quite obvious, right? So <laughs> to understand how questions of knowledge work, we need to make one big distinction, a big distinction. And that distinction is between the sources of our knowledge, where does knowledge come from, and what we might call the success of our knowledge. What does it mean when we know something? What does it mean for that to be successful? So we have the source of knowledge on one hand, success of the knowledge on the other hand. So let's look at sources first, right? So we talk about maybe a source of knowledge. We're just talking about sort of how we might think of the cognitive workings of our mind operate. Okay, so we're not going to cover them all. There, there's a lot of nuance here that I would be happy to discuss, but more so, Meredith would be happy for you to discuss with me so that she can stop listening to these things probably. Um, so there's a lot of nuances here, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll kind of go at the most straightforward pieces. All right, so we won't cover them all, but we'll cover sort of the big three. So if you think of sources of knowledge, there's, there's three of them, right? We have perception, right? We have our senses. We have testimony, what people say to us. And we have uh, what, just what we might call reason, right? So think of perception. How do you know, for instance, what this wall behind me is made of? You just look at it, right? You just, it's brick. Yeah, that's it. See? Pretty, not that bad. Uh, you just look at it. So the way we come to know most of the things around us is simply just by perceiving them through our senses. So that's the, the first of the source of the sources of knowledge is our perception. Think about testimony. How do you know uh, what someone's name is, for example? Right? They tell you. <laughs> yeah, and you trust them. People don't typically go around lying about that. And also, you might sometimes hear, I get this a lot. You look like a so-and-so. I don't know what that means. But uh, the way that we learn about other people is not typically through perception, at least things like names. You don't really look like a Josh, uh, whatever that might mean. Uh, we learn about people's names through testimony, right? Through them telling us. Um, so the same thing with the past, right? History, we weren't there, right? So we rely on the testimony of someone like Moses or Cicero for our knowledge of those things. So that's testimony. Uh, and then the third source is our reason. Think about numbers, something like numbers, not the book of numbers, but literal numbers, right? 
how do you know, for example, that three is greater than one? You can't smell it, right? You can't see, you can't really see three. You can see a drawing of a three and a one, but that doesn't really tell you anything, right? The way you know something like a number, like greater than, lesser than, all those things, is by you understand the concepts in question, right? You understand what a three is, you understand what a one is, and you understand that it couldn't be any other way than that three is numerically greater than one, right? So that's reason. That's the, that's the third source of our knowledge of these big three, right? Perception, testimony, reason. Great. So this is, and reason is what you'll, you'll often hear. That's a little confusing. Sometimes the whole thing is called reason, right? But you'll often hear reason, rationality, logic, deduction, all these things. That's what we're talking about, the third source of knowledge. Okay, source of knowledge. Let's talk about the success of knowledge. The reason we must distinguish between merely a source of knowledge and whether or not it's successful, right, is uh, because we can be wrong. <laughs> That's why. Think about perception. So I asked you what the wall behind me was. You looked at it. You said it's brick, right? But then what if someone comes in and is like, hey, I am the greatest wallpaper person ever, and this is all wallpaper, right? We'd be like, oh, okay, well, now I thought I was wrong. I thought I knew what it was, but I was wrong. It was my source, the perception, wasn't successful. So I didn't actually know that it was brick because it wasn't brick. Now, you know, so we might, call, we might say that that's been defeated, right? If we don't have the success, maybe that, that source has been defeated. And so these things, so someone could defeat that, but then someone could come in and say, hey, there's this crazy man coming around telling everybody that all the walls are made of wallpaper, and he's a lunatic, and we're trying to lock him up. So don't listen to him, right? So just because something's been defeated doesn't mean that it's like, okay, well, now I can never know, right? Uh, that you can now you can take the defeat back out of that, and, and now your source is successful again. So, But the main point is that there's success in our mind. That's what we need our sources to be successful. All right. So, again, think about that, that was perception. Think about testimony, right? What if, uh, let's say you meet someone, they tell you all about this really awesome startup they founded, CEO, right? And uh, it's like, hey, maybe you might even want to invest a little money in this really new cutting-edge medical diagnostic company, blah, 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 right? You're like, whoa, that's really convincing. And then you go home, you turn on the TV, boom, there's their face, right? So-and-so has been charged with 11 counts of fraud. All right, well... Now, maybe I'm not going to take what they said, their testimony, as true. Their, the success of that testimony has been defeated. All right. And then reason. We won't get into this, just but if you happen to be interested for reason, think of something like gravity, right? Gravity is sort of a mathematically deduced system of knowledge. You had Newton, right? Everybody was like, he was... He was probably right about all that, right? What do we know? But then Einstein comes along and is like, no, actually, totally different mathematically deduced system, blah, 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 again. But that's how that would work is reason has a source. Maybe it's the universal theory of gravitation, blah, blah, blah. Maybe someone like Einstein comes along and defeats it. Don't feel too bad if Einstein comes along and defeats what you have reasoned out. So to summarize, uh, we got... The sources of knowledge, success of knowledge, uh, and 
That's really the main distinction that we want to see. This is how we want to understand how knowledge works, these two components, okay? We've got to stay hydrated. All right, so how does all this relate to our question this morning? Uh, the answer is that it presents us with two possibilities. Okay, so we've said that knowledge, the way knowledge works is that we have a source of knowledge, and if the source is successful, then under normal circumstances, right, we can say we know something. So one possibility is for us to take a given source of knowledge and claim that it points to God. Okay, uh, for example, we could show the beauty we perceive in the world around us, the beauty we have that comes through our senses point to God. Think of a baby, right? If you want to find one, there's one in the back. Think of think of if you've ever seen a baby yawn. Right? If you've ever seen a baby smile, if you've ever heard a baby laugh, or if you've ever heard a baby sneeze, right? We could say that in some sense, these perceptions, we know that there is a God, right? So the source shows us who God is. Think about testimony, right? As, as Pastor Tracy's going to look at next week, we could point to all this overwhelming manuscript testimony. For the truth of the Bible, and we could see that as a source of knowledge, right, for the claims of Scripture. Same thing with logic or reason. In two weeks, Jim's going to look at the so-called logical problem of evil, right? How could a good God allow all of this undeniably present evil in this world? So those are ways we could look at sources and how they show God. But another possibility is... Now, we could show how all of these sources could only be successful if God does exist. All right, what? Okay, so rather than showing how any given source of knowledge successfully points to God, we could try to show that the possibility of successful knowledge itself demonstrates his existence. Think of it like a train. Right, okay, so you kind of, we could get on the train at like a source station. We could take it and then we could get out. We could look, are we at the success station or not? Are we not there? Uh, right, we could do that. Or we could do the opposite. We could get on at the success station and then go back and see, did we end up at a source? Right? And so that sounds pretty counterintuitive, but this is actually how we reason all the time. Think about your normal life, how you go about everyday life, right? You have to assume that you could be successful in all the things that you know. Imagine if you didn't, right? If you had, every time you saw a brick, you had to pick it up. Or every time you heard someone tell you something, you had to verify the, with absolute certainty all the exhaustive possibilities of doubt that could enter your mind, right? That would be impossible. And in fact, according to secular psychology, you, that would be a diagnosis of a mental health disorder. It's called paranoid schizophrenia. So we have to assume that all of these things are successful. And so that's why we can get on the train at the success station and then go back to the source station to see how we got there. Okay, so. Still going strong. Okay. All right, so uh, what we're saying is that we have to assume that our, the success of our knowledge has to be present under what I've been calling normal circumstances. And so what this means for the question of God's existence is that we can try to demonstrate that this very assumption itself, the assumption of successful knowledge, 
that these require God. They are only possible if God exists. So if God did not exist, in other words, we would never be able to get off the train, right? So now we've defined the question. Let's try to describe an answer. Uh, and again, it's very important. This is just an answer. It's not the answer, right? So no question has ever given an answer that is perfectly complete or completely persuasive, right? So our goal is simply to describe an answer that might help as a starting point in continuing these conversations. So the first thing we'll consider is what the Bible says about this and then what it means for our discussion. So look back with me at the passage that Meredith read just a few minutes ago. What we're looking at, what we're looking for is what God says about himself in relation to our question this morning. We've talked about what it means to know something. We've talked about what it means uh, for the sources of knowledge. We've talked about the success of knowledge. We've talked about how the source for it to be successful, right? Uh, what that means, we talked about in the case of God, one of the ways we can try to show that we know he exists is by showing that this notion of success depends on God. To see this, consider two ways God describes himself, and then we'll try to tie this back in to what we've been saying. Okay? So look with me at Jeremiah 10. The first part of the answer that is described is the absolute personhood of God. Look at verse 10, which is sort of a theme for the entire section. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. What we see described here is God's absolute personhood. Look at verses 2 through 5. Let's think about this for a minute. Verses 2 through 5. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them. They cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. So here, God is contrasting himself with the lifeless, powerless, wordless objects of hope of the nation. And he's saying, I am not like these things. Look at verse 9. They are the work of the craftsmen. And of the hands of the goldsmith. And then we come back to verse 10 again. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. The everlasting king. Right? This is, this is essentially what Augustine said to the Romans. Right? The Romans were blaming Christians, the people who would not worship idols but started worshiping God. They were blaming the fall of Rome on them. Uh, and Augustine said, you have trusted in a piece of wood to protect your home, right? You've, you've taken this piece of wood and said, it protects my house. But if you move to a new house, you got to carry it there, right? You're trusting in this piece of wood to look out for you, but it wouldn't even be able to find you if you didn't take it everywhere you went, right? And so here, 
In contrast to this, God is saying, I am God is describing himself in decidedly personal terms. He is the living, acting, ruling, speaking, loving God. And not only is he personal, he is absolutely personal. Okay? Absolutely personal. All right, look at verse 12. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. And again in verse 16, not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things. Consider what we saw in Acts 17 just a couple of weeks ago. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What these passages and others like them show us is that God is dependent on nothing. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing. All things, whatever they are, if they are, are dependent on God to be what they are. But God possesses no measure of dependence whatsoever. He is comprehensively, everlastingly, perfectly self-sufficient. And, and this is what we mean by absolute. So the first part of our answer is that God, the absolute person of God. And the second part of our answer is the absolute providence of God. Look back at verses 12 and 13 as, as well. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. And he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. And he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. The psalmist repeats this almost exactly in Psalm 135. Uh, listen to what he writes. It is he who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. And right before he quotes this, in verse, this is verse 7 of Psalm 135, he prefaces it with verse 6, saying, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. What we see here is that just as all things are dependent on the absolute personhood of God, so too are all things determined by the absolute providence of God. Every electron, every earthquake, every outcome that we expect and that we do not expect, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. So the second part of our answer then is the absolute providence of God. So what, is, what does all this mean for our discussion? To see this, let's think back to how knowledge works, right? There we said that for us to know something, the source of our knowledge, sources, they have to be successful, right? And then we said not only must the source of our knowledge be successful, there must be the assumption of success. Because if we did not have this assumption of success, uh, if it was not assumed that we could succeed in knowing things, then clearly it would never be possible for us to arrive at a 
knowledge of anything. Think back, right, to our, our paranoid schizophrenia. So based on this, what we said was that one way we could try to show that we know God exists is by showing that he is necessary for this assumption of success. The assumption of success is necessary for us to know anything. And the existence of God is necessary for this assumption of success. Okay? So what does this have to do with God's absolute personality and God's absolute providence? Well, okay. Let's be a little more specific about the assumption of success that we've been talking about, right? Okay, so what exactly are we saying when we assume that the sources of our knowledge can be successful? What are we saying? Uh, we're saying that there are certain necessary circumstances, right, that are required for these sources to be successful, okay? And that these necessary circumstances are, in fact, the case because, again, if they weren't, then the assumption of success would not be possible, okay? There would be no knowledge in the first place. Think about perception. Why do you do the same things today that you did yesterday? Why do you think tomorrow will be like today? It's because for perception to be a successful source of knowledge, there must be a stability in the world around us. Right? That's an assumption of stability in the natural order. This necessary circumstance, for example, is the assumption of all science. Right? All science depends on this stability of the natural order. Uh, what about testimony? What would we have for testimony to be a successful source of knowledge? Truth, right? What is, what is truth, as Pilate infamously asked? Well, truth is many things, but one thing it is, is a stable value. That is, it is unchanging, and it is universally binding. If truth ceased to be either of these things, there would be no concept of truth in the first place. Unchanging and universally binding. It is a stable value. What could we know on the assumption of the instability of truth. And then lastly, what about reason? What must we have for reason to be a successful source of knowledge? Stable laws of thought, which are, again, unchanging, universally binding, right? As with truth, what could you know? What could we know on the assumption of the instability of, for example, logic? It must be unchanging and universally binding. So when we talk about the assumption of success in knowing, what we're talking about is the presence of these certain necessary circumstances, these and others. Right. All right, so returning to our question, then, how can we know that God exists? Well, consider, consider the alternative. If these necessary circumstances for knowledge aren't in the personal, providential God, where are they? How could a fundamentally impersonal sea of meaningless forces 
give rise to love, honesty, generosity, kindness, compassion, self-sacrifice, and a thousand other intrinsically personal values. How could a fundamental instability of meaningless forces give rise to the unchanging and universally binding stability of truth, logic, moral reasoning, the natural order, mathematics, science, history, basketball, music, art, law, political systems, and a thousand other things. If we jettison the idea of God, where else can we turn for the meaning and authority and trustworthiness needed to sustain all the truths we quite literally know and love? Of course, so many people will respond, right? Either these are all just societal norms, right, or our own individual autonomy. But this just pushes the question back. It doesn't answer it, right? Few people, if any, have ever concluded they would be okay with a certain type of moral reasoning that has no regard for their own life, right? Whatever we might say we think about these things, when it comes to what we want, we are likely never to abandon the notion of an unchanging and universally binding reality. So what we're arguing then is that if the Lord, God, does not sit in the heavens, doing all he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps, then we have no basis for a single claim to know even the most trivial thing for the simple reason that the entire host of notions necessary for knowledge would vanish as a figment of our imagination. So, we can know that God exists because if he didn't, the possibility of knowing itself would not exist. So let's conclude with the simple application. What are we, what are we to do with these things? You may find pieces of it helpful. You may find pieces of it unclear. But however you have heard our discussion this morning, we can be confident that knowledge of God is not primarily a matter of argumentation or philosophical analysis, right? And what a wonderful thing it is. Arguments can be helpful, but... When you lose your job, when you lo lose someone you love so dearly, when you lose your bearings on what it is you're doing here, what it is that gives you life and joy and peace and hope, when you lose these things and all you have is a handful of arguments, you're going to be desperately overcome. But the good news is that we're not called to offer a handful of arguments to a desperately overcome world. We're called to offer them a person. We're called to offer them God himself. God has come to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus, God's son, that we know and love and hope in God. Consider these words of Jesus. 
Listen carefully. Look there if you would like. I'm going to read Matthew 11:25. Consider these words of Jesus and the connection of what he's saying about knowledge. He's talking about knowledge and then immediately turns to himself. Consider the connection between his claim and his character, what he says and who he is. Matthew 11:25 through 30 says this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is remarkable. This is what he says next. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To know God is to rest in the mercy of his Son. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your Son. And we thank you that it is through your Son that we may know you, that we may trust you. We ask that you would help us. Only by your grace can we see you as we ought to see you. And so we ask that you would help us do these things for your glory, for our joy and our peace and our hope in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.